Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome back to the CUSA Underdog Podcast. Getting into it just after Christmas. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday. Uh, Pre-recording this because who wants to work during the week of Christmas? Not me. Not Eric Henry. Uh, Jill Lundergan with you once again, talking all things Conference USA football. Uh, Eric, how are you enjoying this uh, this fine pre-Christmas uh, time as we break the illusion immediately? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Joe, I was going to try to stick with it. But hey, you know, you, uh, you, uh, you are an honest man and let the people in. So I will be honest and let the people in as well. Um, I am uh, a little bit tired, a little sleep deprived here as, you know, for you guys listen to this, you will be well into your holiday season and enjoying things as well. And it will probably be, you know, 75 degrees where I live and a lot colder where you live. But that aside, um, I am a little sleep deprived because of a late night report early on this weekend, this past weekend, that there was interest with one uh, Butch Davis from Arkansas. But that interest, as we know, was not mutual. Arkansas has made a decision on their head coach, but I had plenty of FIU faithful texting me. I don't know how they got my number, um, emailing, whatever method of contact they could get to find me asking about their beloved head coach. And I had to assure them that, um, you know, interest can be two ways, right? Like I have a, a, believe it or not, Joe, like I have an insane interest, you know, in dating like Beyonce or, you know, dating like Olivia Munn, but that interest really has to be two ways. Um, or else it really doesn't amount to anything. And that's what I would kind of uh, analogize that to you, uh, Butch Davis and Arkansas. It's, it's very much one-sided. At some point, are you ever just going to get to the point where someone texts you a football-related question and you're just going to respond with, oh, sure, but when it's, do you ever text me when it's not a football-related question? Why doesn't anyone ever ask how Eric's doing? Not, <laughs> not just Coach Davis. You know what, uh, Joe? I, I, that's definitely how I feel. Um, I, I remember the days on Twitter when, like, you know, my funny, you know, uh, like, for example, <laughs> you can tell us the holidays, right? And me and Joe and I are really just, you know, kind of biding our time, counting on the days until we can get some rest here. Uh, Joe, I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, Celine Dion actually went to a Toronto Raptors game, and she looks just like Carmen San Diego next to the Toronto Raptor. Um, <laughs> there are people who used to find those tweets of mine funny. And now they're like, shut up. We don't care. We just want FIU news so or Conference USA news. So, hey, uh, I'm no longer so loved. Can I, can I tell you uh, a Celine Dion-related story that uh, <laughs> is, kind of falls into this? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and while you do it, I'm going to send you the Celine Dion tweet so you can also see that she looks just like Carmen Sandiego. But go ahead. I do want to hear this. Okay, so I should preface this by saying he's fine. He pulled through, uh, but my girlfriend's uncle went to a Celine Dion concert in Kentucky a couple weeks back and had a heart attack during the show and was rushed to the hospital. And as they were, um, and as they admitted him, I swear to God, the doctor looks at the chart and says, guess his heart won't go on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I should have laughed at heart attack. But it's it's okay because he like like I said he pulled through all's good now. But I was, it was just like I can't believe you couldn't hold back for once. Like I mean the joke writes itself. But uh, absolutely, I mean it was. I, 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 <laughs> hey man, you know Celine Dion. It, some people you know get get really touched by the music, and uh, I'm just glad he pulled through. But you know I, I guess we've all been there at some point. <laughs> What are we talking yeah, about? The people listening to this podcast are like, we come here for football and talking about Celine Dion for five minutes. All right, we'll, we'll bring it around. We know. Come on, guys. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get started. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of sinking ships, uh, some programs trying to get out of that, uh, that hole with uh, some new coach hires. See, I pulled it out. You doubted me, but I did it. Anyway, uh, let's start with Old Dominion and the coaching change there. Old Dominion's. Uh, Longtime head coach, of course, Bobby Wilder resigned a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he has since been replaced with a former Penn State assistant in Ricky Rain, uh, just a 39-year-old guy, but um, should be a pretty good, uh, a pretty good pickup for them. Um, one of our uh, underdog dynasty compatriots, Adam Luckett, made the comment: "If you want to, uh, you know, play in FBS, you got to get an FBS head coach." And uh, this guy definitely seems like he's ready for uh, such a task. 
Um, prior to joining the Monarchs, uh, you know, I think if you're Old Dominion, you definitely need an offensive-minded guy, uh, considering what happened with them last season and uh, kind of the progress that they were sort of making the last couple of seasons. But I think this is a pretty decent hire, but at the same time, I feel like they probably could have gone with um, someone who knows the state of Virginia a little bit better. Yeah, so, you know, you talked about the fact that he's not necessarily a Virginia guy, and there were a couple names I know I had thrown out on a previous podcast talking about, you know, Shane Beamer as well as Ronald Curry, guys who are Virginia natives, and, okay, they don't go that route, but I do think Ricky Rain, you know, he's been with the program, that that Penn State program, so he's, he comes from a, a big power five football, you know, powerhouse and was the offensive coordinator I mean he he coached Christian Hackenberg you know he coached the uh, uh the current quarterback there now Sean Clifford to respectable numbers and prior to that he's really a James Franklin disciple he was with James Franklin at Bandy um from 2011 to 2013 as well as following him was the quarterback's coach and then promoted to, to uh tight ends coach and then offensive coordinator so I'm not down on the hire per se I will say this I do think two things. One, whoever they hired had to be offensive-minded because quarterback Hayden Wolf, I mean, he is the future. You know, 6'5", 220-pound quarterback. Those guys, just in terms of physical attributes, don't grow on trees. The fact that as a true freshman, I had talked about this, that ODU, they were ranked, I believe, 111th in passing offense. Uh, yeah, 111th. They only averaged 176.4 yards per contest. But Hayden Wolf actually saw them to their two biggest passing outputs of the year, which was 321 yards against Middle Tennessee State and 289 against UTSA before missing the final game with an injury. So just in his two starts alone, you know, he pretty much doubled up what ODU oh, excuse me, what ODU signal callers. I was getting ready to say signal callers and quarterbacks all at once, but uh, however you would like to uh, phrase them. The people running the offense for Old Dominion, he pretty much doubled up what the numbers had been before between Messiah DeWeaver and Stone Smart. So I think the number one order of business was getting someone who you feel confident can develop that quarterback, right? I think you look at the UTSA, and we'll talk about that coaching situation in a second. That always seemed to be a situation where the quarterback position was never right. Now, part of that was because of injuries. But I do think if you're going to go with an offensive mind, the number one thing, I mean, let's use an NFL example. Look at the Cleveland Browns right now and their development of Baker Mayfield. It's one thing that it seems like, all right, that isn't necessarily working out with their current coach um, who's been there. But you have to get someone who can, A, develop that position, and B, if you have a young talent, make the most of that guy. Because guess what? The, not only the program, the future of your program, but the future of your own head coaching tenure is going to be tied to that quarterback there, right? You know, more or less, it's going to at least take you a recruiting cycle or two to get, quote unquote, your quarterback in there if you're not pleased with the one you have. So I'm a huge fan of the hire in that sense, which is get someone who can develop that player or players you have um, in place now, it, it, unless it's a situation, you know, where you feel like you've got to totally blow it up. So in that sense, I'm, I, I, I think it's a good hire. Now, in the other sense, yeah, you do have to be able to recruit. We'll see what he can do. Um, I, to the best of my knowledge, looking at his his um, profile on 24-7 Sports, he was not a featured recruiter at Penn State, so I don't know, you know, um, necessarily his ability to recruit per se, but he obviously has the experience with quarterbacks. I think that's a plus with Hayden Wolf. Yeah, 100%. And you make a great point about this guy's ability to develop quarterbacks. I mean, you look at some of the guys that he's worked with over the last uh little little uh the, over the last over the last several years or so. Um pr primarily Sean Clifford from uh, Penn State had a really solid career there. Won a Big 10 title in 2016, uh won a huge bowl game in 2017 against uh Washington. And then you look at how close this Penn State team legitimately came this year to uh making the playoff. Just had a few uh mess ups at the very end there, but uh could be a decent Higher for Old Dominion just kind of comes down to what he can do in the recruiting department. And as you mentioned, what he can do with these young players. Um, you mentioned that uh, it's going to take a lot of the same traits to develop UTSA into a winning program. Uh, Frank Wilson, of course, out as head coach over there after a few years. And in comes Jeff Trailer, the former Arkansas assistant. Uh, he is the new head man at UTSA and with a tough task ahead of him. Uh, to put it bluntly. 
Yeah, I mean, okay. So once again, before I kind of, you know, sometimes I'll do this to you where I like to ask your opinion, just to make sure I'm not going crazy here. A lot of the chatter that I saw uh, in terms of Conference USA Twitter was, okay, Lisa Campos, you know, UTSA's AD, makes the move. She wants to bring her own guy. Obviously, it was Lynn Hickey, the former AD at UTSA, who had hired Frank Wilson before her arrival. So she wants to, you know, bring her own guy, right? But a lot of the chatter I saw was, you fire a former running backs coach to bring in a <laughs> ex, you know, or running backs coach at the position at Arkansas. And I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily know if maybe UTSA fans and maybe conference USA fans in general had an idea of a sexy name or maybe a guy, you know, a higher profile name who was going to come in. But I'm just curious your thoughts. Um, I mean, not that, you know, you have the full extensive breakdown on a trailer just yet, but just on the surface, what do you think of, you know, you get rid of Frank Wilson, then you bring in someone who essentially is Frank Wilson light. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think you're kind of right in the in the ballpark there on what this looks like, at least on the surface. Uh, very similar uh, to what Frank Wilson had in terms of background coming into this job. Um, you know, and really, it's just going to come down to you know what can he do with the you know legit talents on this roster. Uh, primarily Lowell Narcisse and Sincere McCormick. Um, but then again, he's also just going to have to, uh, you know, do what we talked about with Ricky Rain. He's going to have to recruit well, and he's going to have to uh, build on the culture that Frank Wilson built. Because I think if there's one thing that Frank Wilson uh, did do correctly when he was the coach at UTSA, it's he built a strong, positive culture. No, uh, None of his assistant coaches really had anything uh, bad to say about him. So I think if he's going to be successful in this job, he's got to take what, Frank Wilson uh, kind of laid the building blocks of, and he's he's got to turn it up to a thousand. Yeah, so you know, on uh, in all those points, I do agree with you there. I think you, you talk about the building blocks. You know, whether it's Frank Harris, Lowell Narcisse, as far as the quarterback position, and then they have a stud and Sincere McCormick. And I do think, once again, I just talked about you know the quarterback, uh, excuse me, the head coach at Old Dominion, Ricky Rain, and the quarterback there in Hayden Wolf. I think if you hire, and I'm not saying that you you to hire a coach just because of one position, but if you bring in a guy who's a running backs coach and you think you have a premier special talent, which I think all of us are in agreement that we think Sincere McCormick is that at UTSA, then you want to bring someone who can play to that player strengths, right? So at least you bring in someone in that regard who can do that. And there's a lot of young talent there, you know, talk about Rashad Wisdom, uh, Wisdom's brothers there as well. When you talk about that young talent from uh, the San Antonio era, area, excuse me, not era, San Antonio area. And that's an area that's pretty rich with talent. I mean, I don't know if anyone's seen the show Friday Night Tykes, but uh, they start them young down there. So uh, Texas in general, rich with talent. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But just in terms of the overall hire, once again, you know, I have talked about Lisa Campos probably, you know, the past two or three podcasts. The reason I am so, you know, incessant in bringing her up is because she is a new AD and, or a newer AD, I shouldn't say new, I've been on the job about two years now, but she has really large scale, you know, grandiose plans for um, UTSA's athletics as a whole, not just football, but really their entire athletic program. So I do think that if you're going to cut bait, you have to, in the, in the vein of the old Bill Parcells line, like if you expect me to cook the meal, you got to let me buy the groceries, right? So if it's her show, and you expect her to take UTSA's athletics as a whole to the next level, you got to let her bring in her people. I, I look at, for example, you know, being an alumni, uh, alumnus of UCF, uh, when Danny White came in and he made the choice, obviously George O'Leary resigned, but a lot of the coaches, I believe there's been five coaches just overall since his arrival. Uh, it's only been about three or four years since he's been there that he's made the coaching changes. So I just think that if it's going to put your stamp on it, and just like a football coach, right, you know, you, you come in, you clean house, you have your your own staff and your own players. You want to run your system. The AD spot is is not exclusive to that type of feeling. So if it's Lisa Campos' show, you gotta let her do her own thing. So this is her hire. It's it's her mark on the football program, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, time will tell how this hire will work out. However, I have to ask. Um, I'm assuming Eric, you follow uh, you know Jared Kalmus, one of our editors uh, of UDD on Twitter. And uh, did you see the uh, saga of him finding out that Jeff Trailer had no Wikipedia page as of uh, yesterday? So I was I didn't follow it extremely closely. What I did see was someone created a Wikipedia page for him and Jared's name was actually linked for a point of time, a period of time in the Wikipedia. But I didn't get a chance to see the whole thing. Um, <laughs> fill me in. What did I miss? 
Yeah, so as of now, um, someone has gone in and created an official Jeff Trailer Wikipedia page with his bio and his past uh, coaching gigs and all that. However, um, if you had the delight of seeing what uh, what it said on December 9th, it said, uh, Jeff Trailer is the current head football coach for the Texas San Antonio Roadrunners football team. Upon his hiring, he confirmed to Jared Kalmus of Underdog Dynasty and Pitchfork that, quote, Paste is actually my preferred music reviewer magazine of choice, as well as my staple breakfast food. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. I don't know who gotta love that. Gotta love the old Wikipedia edit, right? Yeah, that is, uh, that is very funny. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, the higher on UTSA's end. Um, and then last, but certainly not least the conference USA champion FAU owls end their season on a bit of an up and down note, of course, winning the conference title, but head coach Lane Tiffin announcing that he is headed to old miss to fill that coaching vacancy. In the meantime, they will have an interim head coach in a uh, defensive coordinator, Glenn Spencer. And um, early indication is that his uh, his team is really supportive of this move. Uh, multiple players publicly saying that they're happy about him getting the interim coaching job. And um, Eric, from what you've told me, it sounds like steps are being taken to make him the head coach uh, permanently, at least in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, and and I just you know we'll, we'll clarify that uh, it, it, it's not necessarily in motion just yet. But it's trending that way that he may actually be the guy when you look at the way the coaching search has played out. I know there's been some chatter amongst FAU Twitter of wondering, you know, hey, um, we've talked about, you know, Eddie Grand, Kentucky uh, offensive coordinator who has local ties. You know, there's been talk of even an NAIA coach from a local area at Kaiser. Uh, see, I'm sorry that the, his name is escaping me right now, but, you know, giving that guy a shot. Um, there just isn't necessarily that marquee big name candidate. And it's something that, you know, I had said to you before we started taping, what is the expectation at FAU, right? I know everyone's riding the high of the, you know, double-digit win season and the Conference USA title, two and three years, things of that nature. But is FAU necessarily that job that's going to attract that, you know, big-name coach at all times? I don't know. I'm not here to say that you can or cannot. I will say this. You probably were a little spoiled in the sense that down here we had the Lane Kiffin-Butch Davis battles, and you probably, you know, if you're an FAU side of things, it doesn't sound as sexy if it's quote-unquote Eddie Grant versus Butch Davis, and maybe that's coloring some people's perspectives. But I just think that in terms of Glenn Spencer, when you look at – this is the thing. I like to just, you know, take guys' names off of it. Just like, for example, you go P5 versus G5, right? You got a solid G5 team. And you match them against a P5 team. Let's just take the names off it, you know, off the jerseys and look at them on the surface, right? When you look at all the candidates who we talk about, uh, the guys who are linked to it, you know, Kendall Bryles, uh, Charlie Weiss Jr., Travis Trickett, things of that nature. Why not Glenn Spencer? The knock against him is nothing of his own doing. It's the fact that a he's 55 and he can't control his age. B He's a defensive guy, and that's just not in vogue right now. It's not sexy to hire the defensive coach. One of the weirdest things, Joe, you know, and I'm like, so I'm filling in on the fly here, that I've seen from FAU Twitter is this really heavy emphasis that, okay, I'm okay with hiring Glenn Spencer. It's not my first choice, but I'll be okay with it if, you know, he has to make sure that he plays an emphasis on hiring the right offensive coordinator. As if Glenn Spencer is, I don't know, going to put the defensive tackle at quarterback the defensive end at running back and another defensive end at fullback, change the offense to the wishbone and call it a power running game. Like I, I, I just, I'm, I'm a little confused at, you know, some of the insistence uh, of those uh, among FAU Twitter who are like, all right, their trepidation with Glenn Spencer isn't necessarily his own coaching ability or the fact that all these players are swearing by him. Even I talked about on this podcast, Alex Highsmith, star defensive end from Charlotte, when I talked to him at media days, you know, his face lit up talking about Glenn Spencer essentially attributing all of his success to what he's done for him personally. 
No one's talking about that. They're saying that, oh, well, he's got to hire an offensive coordinator. And I just don't understand. It's like if you hire a young offensive mind, right, do you not think that that same dilemma, he has to hire the right defensive coordinator comes into play? So that's been a little bit surprising. But all things considered, I do think there is a strong kind of sentiment that, you know, made by the next time we're taking a podcast after Christmas, Glenn Spencer could be FAU's head coach. Yeah, I mean, me personally, I don't really see a problem with it. You mentioned that, yeah, all these players are swearing by him, and I'm, I'm sure part of that is the success they achieved this season on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, we talked about how on the last episode they were leading all of FBS in turnovers forced. So um, at least when it comes to this season, his resume absolutely speaks for itself. Um, as far as like why would uh why do fans expect them to get the get a uh offensive minded person i think a lot of that has to do with how they've kind of been spoiled by lane kiffin offenses the last few years he's brought you know so many people with such strong offensive pedigrees into that program with uh Bryles, with you know charlie weiss jr and uh you know the list kind of goes on um, so I think it's just kind of been the expectation. Do they need somebody like that to be a successful program? Absolutely not. But at the same time, I think that's just kind of, you know, been the type of football that fans have, uh, you know, come to expect from FAU the last few years. And while, you know, by every indication, if you watch those games on TV and can see the stands, not exactly, you know, selling out the place, but at the same time, it's brought a huge level of exposure to that program and to that university. So, well, I do think Glenn Spencer would do a pretty decent job as the head coach of this program. I understand why people w- might be hesitant to to not get an offensive guy in there, considering how offensive football has really you know done a lot for that program since Lane Kiffin took it over. Okay, you know what? That's a really good point that you make because I hadn't even thought of that, and it's something that I'm gonna um, you know get with my guy Jake Elman and see what he thinks about. You talked about the fact that the the fan aspect, right? And I hate to think that that would ever play a role in the hiring of a head coach, especially a guy like Glenn Spencer, who has worked his way up, you know, from he actually has prior head coaching experience. He was a division two head coach in the early 90s. I believe it was with Georgia State. Oh, actually, no, Georgia State's program has just been, uh, it's just been, um, Created. So it wasn't Georgia State, but the name of which, of which school was escaped me. However, um, he, you know, you like to see a veteran coach get their shot. However, it's, it's a real point that you make in terms of points put people in the stands and exciting football does things. I always tend to lean on my experience, you know, being a, an alumnus of UCF. I know what the stands were during the George O'Leary years when a lot of games ended 21-17. And, you know, the Knights were winning 10 games a year and, you know, competing for CUSA titles under George O'Leary. But the stands weren't full at Spectrum Stadium, then Wright House Network Stadium, until the Mackenzie Milton era. So that is a very real point you make. Whether people like to uh, admit it or not, it is a fact. Um, I guess, you know, a little bit of background on me. I'm born and raised in Tampa, Florida, and my first real exposure to football is the uh, early 2000s Buccaneers. You're talking about defenses like our teams led by defensive Warren Sapp and things like that. So maybe I'm – Maybe defense is ingrained in me that I find that type of football sexy and attractive. Um, but yeah, no, you know what? It's a really good point you make. So I, I'm glad you did make that point, Joe, because it is real. Um, you'd like to think it doesn't play a factor in the hiring process, but it's something you have to consider. Yeah, for sure. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like one of your original questions heading into this was like, should FAU be considered like a destination gig for for a lot of these yeah. coaches that are entering the market? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my answer to that question is I don't really see why not. I mean, A, you look at the location and like Boca Raton is a a great place to live for the most part. Um, The recruiting pool that you have to pick from just within like, you know, a 15 mile radius alone is ridiculous. Uh, And then B, like part of the reason Lane Kiffin liked it so much is you could, you know, the fame wasn't really a factor there. Like, you know, he was, he could be, you know, himself in that there wasn't a ton of, of pressure from like locals or whatever, at least not to the extent that you would get at an Alabama or an Ohio state or a Penn state or anything like that. But it seems like a pretty comfortable place to, to come. And um, especially with the solid base that's there right now, um, 
I don't really see why it, it shouldn't be a, a destination job, at least for these guys that are, you know, still trying to get that that middle step between like uh, a, an FCS job or a lower tier FBS job and then go someplace like an FAU where there is a solid tradition. It's a good location. There's a, a lot of good recruiting potential. And then, you know, I can't fault guys for going to a P5 job the way Lane Kiffin did because that money is ridiculous. But I think for those guys that are kind of in that mid-level, maybe ready to, maybe not quite ready to make the P5 jump, but just below that, I don't really see why this couldn't be, uh, you know, a desired place to be. Not only all the points you make, but they have a tremendous facility. First off, FAU Stadium is, you know, I did a stadium ranking article last season, and uh, self-admittedly, I think I underrated FAU Stadium because it is a tremendous facility. Now, of course, it's not always packed. You know, that's one thing that you can say about FAU, but you can say that about a lot of G5 schools. But you have the stadium, which is awesome. And then they have a outstanding facility that is right next door to FAU Stadium that's going up. We'll be ready next year. It's one of the reasons I thought Lane Kiffin might actually stay is the fact that they are getting that new practice facility. It is gorgeous. I mean, if you see it, um, it's phenomenal. So I think that uh, um, in itself just makes the the program really attractive because one of the things, especially at the G5 level, is you don't want to be at a job where, you know, the infrastructure isn't there, you know, because there's only so much you can do uh, in terms of a coach without certain um, materials at your disposal. Yeah, 100%. And um, I want to talk a little bit more about Kiffin leaving specifically. One of the things that we talked about a lot on this show over the last year and a half or so was we never really doubted that eventually he was going to go to a P5 job. But I kind of got the impression that he was still kind of enjoying this section of his career where he was enjoying the benefits of living in Boca and um, – you know, achieving some pretty decent success at the G5 level. Uh, you know, obviously the money's a factor, but, you know, do you really think he was just ready to get back into, you know, the SEC swing of things? Or I guess, like, other than the money, what do you think was the biggest factor in, in luring him away from this uh, FAU job? Oh, boy. Now I'm in the chair of psychoanalyzing Elaine Kiffin, right? Which is. <laughs> um, so let's just start with the background. When I talked to Lane Kiffin for the first time at Media Days, what really struck me was, for those of you who have this idea of Lane Kiffin as a boisterous personality, and maybe maybe to an extent, you know, he earned that reputation in his younger years, but we all do, right? You know, do things that uh, we mature and, and, and do things that we kind of regret. Um, he is not. When you talk to Lane Kiffin, at least to the media, at least, he talks at a whisper to the point where if you listen to my actual recording of his audio, you can barely make it out. Like you cannot hear it without headphones on. Uh, he talks at a very low uh, tone of voice. And not only that, he seems almost shy. Now, how much of that is just him being coy with the media? I don't know. I found it as legit. And I just spin that all the way around. I looked at that as like, that just seems like a guy who could live without the hoopla and the, you know, bells and whistles of being in the pressure cooker that is the SEC or a big time program and is happy just being at Boca in Boca, uh, taking his boat to the coaches show and living his life. And to an extent, I'm sure this part of that's, that's very true. However, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in the sense that maybe he looked at this and said two conference titles in three years, what's my peak, right? You know, I'm sure we all kind of face that dilemma in our own careers in life where we look at it and say, Hey, you know, we've reached the pinnacle of what we can do here. What's next, right? And I think for coaches, for us, you know, as just lay people, what's next is, what's next is paying the bills, right? But, uh, you know, Lane Kiffin obviously isn't hurting for paying the bills. So what's next for him is to get back in the pressure cooker and maybe compete for an SEC title or, you know, <laughs> this is not a slide at Ole Miss. So Ole Miss fans, please don't come at me. Joe, <laughs> Ole Miss is never going to win a national title, right? I don't think – am I breaking news by saying that? I don't think so, at least not in the era of, you know, Bama and Clemson dominance. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just like – in that sense, I guess it does surprise me because, yeah, you want to compete at the highest level, and coaches have very large egos, and maybe Lane Kiffin has to be the guy who says, you know what, 
I'm the guy who can bring a national title to Ole Miss, right? Who can have them competing for top fives. I just look at 100 years of football in their history and <laughs> sorry, SEC fans, if you take Ole Miss or Mississippi State or Vandy and put them in the American, they're Memphis and UCF. They're, they're not, you know, they're teams that will compete for conference titles, but they're not like gangbusters. And I venture to say that UCF would stand out among uh, all those guys. And sure, you can at me and say I'm an alum, I'll take it, whatever. So I, I, just, I just don't think that Ole Miss is the job that's going to have you there competing with Clemson and Bama and, you know, Auburn those, and those guys. But maybe that was the driving force to bring Lane back to the SEC, that sense of, hey, I, I've done what I can do it at, at FAU. Maybe he's at the ceiling. I think that might be a fair assessment. Well, we found the snippet that's going to be on all the old message, uh, old miss message boards for a while. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting situation for Kiffin to be in for sure. I think uh, definitely that payday has got to be uh, pretty nice. But yeah, I think you make a good point. I mean, he's he's conquered this level of football for sure. Um, and really, there's not really any point to maybe going to like. Uh, uh, you know, a quote unquote tougher, well, you know, not quote unquote, a tougher G5 conference, like and, um, the Mountain West or something, for example. So it really the next logical step was to take a P5 job. And I think, uh, you know, while yes, I think you're correct. And Ole Miss definitely has a probably, you know, too tight of a mountain to climb in order to get to national title aspirations. Um, it clearly seems like the window is opening up for you know more and more SEC teams besides Alabama to kind of get a shot at that title, as we're seeing this year with Georgia and LSU. So uh, it could be an interesting place for him to be in. Um, but I mean, we've, we've pontificated. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, for the record, really quick, you know, I'm not trying to save face here. I actually like Ole Miss. Like, I think they have a great, you know, tailgate area um, with the Grove, and and I think you know they're a cool school to be at, but. I'm not going to, you know, spit in the face of a hundred years of history to say that you guys are national title, national, national championship contenders. So sorry. (laughs) For sure. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, before we pontificate too much on SEC football, we should probably get back into the CUSA swing of things. Um, You know, we talked about the, uh, the bowl schedule a little bit on the last episode, but uh, happy to go in depth on that on uh, on this episode so with uh with the regular season at a conclusion we once again have a number of cusa bowl games uh being played uh 10 i believe to be exi- no not 10 um pretty close right one two three four five six seven eight eight i was close i didn't want to count it out on air but there we go um so some pretty decent bowl games actually coming cusa's way based on the number of teams they got bowl eligible. Uh, Starting off with the Makers Wanted Bahamas Bowl, uh, Charlotte's first bowl game in program history. They're taking on Buffalo in that game on December 20th. Uh, You can catch that one on ESPN at 2 p.m. Eastern that Friday. Uh, Buffalo favored by six and a half points. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people kind of complain about this game because, A, it's not an easy travel day for anybody. in this league really. Uh, but I think this is a really good spot for Charlotte to be in because uh, a it's their first bowl game in program history. I think it's a really good uh, place for Will Healy to kind of put an exclamation point on the season. Um, but certainly a tough task for Buffalo who have been uh, consistently really tough the last couple of years. Um, if I had to make a pick right now, uh, I think I'd go Charlotte. I've been really happy with what they've done at the end of this year. Chris Reynolds is playing phenomenally. Uh, same with Alex Highsmith in that defense. So, um, you know, if I had to pick a pick today, I think I'd go with the 49ers. Yeah, for people who may be, you know, complaining about this and it not necessarily being the easiest of travel, don't complain at all. Be happy. Because I just looked at the weather in Buffalo, and the projected weather for that day is 27 degrees and snowy. And then let's take it over to Charlotte. It is high of 51, low of 33, mostly sunny. You know what I can tell you? It's going to be a bit warmer in Nassau, Bahamas. So be happy. That aside, if we go on the field, the biggest challenge I think that will face the 49ers is the fact that Buffalo has a really strong running game. They are ranked ninth in all of FBS football. Uh, they've run for over 3,000 yards on the year, or with 613 carries. That's just a ton of yards. 
on a ton of carries. You look at it, they have Jarrett Patterson and Kevin Marks over 1,000 yards. Jarrett Patterson's run for 1,626 yards. Marks run for just over 1,000. Uh, combined for 26 touchdowns, if my quick math is correct. I believe that is 17 and 8. Uh, so obviously not much of a passing threat. Kyle Bantrese and Matt Myers are combined to throw for 1,700 yards. So I think in the biggest thing for Charlotte will be to just go out there and just play their game. And what I mean by that is this. Don't get so caught up in the fact that Buffalo can run the ball really well. They've done that in their conference. Be confident that, you know, Charlotte playing in Conference USA and playing against Clemson and teams like that have just faced better competition, and you'll run them off the field. Because I remember that was kind of the deal with FIU pay, taking on Toledo last year. They had Bryant Kobach and Art, uh, well, excuse me, Art Tompkins had left, so he wasn't there. But they had a couple running backs. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the other kid's name who was there, but they all were guys who'd run for over five, 600 yards. And the fear was, oh my gosh, these guys are going to, you know, run all over us because FIU had a, a really bad run D last year. I mean, they had a bad run D this year as well, but uh, that was the fear. And then FIU came down there and was able to move the ball and be effective, and they did really well against the run. I just think that was more of a credit to Conference USA being a better league than the MAC at the time. So uh, if you're Charlotte, I think you just go out there and play your game plan. Alex Highsmith's got to show up, make plays, find a way to maybe not necessarily get sacks because Buffalo's not a passing team, but find a way to make plays in the backfield. And I want to see, you know, Benny LeMay show out. It's both games I like to see the stars show out. You know, Benny LeMay, uh, I want to see Vic Tucker have a couple, uh, uh, you know, make a couple trips to the end zone, and Chris Reynolds. It'll be the first time that really a national audience will get a chance to see him as well as the entire 49ers as a whole. So um, uh, even though I believe Buffalo may be favored, I'm taking Charlotte. In agreement on that one. Uh, one more note on the whole um... – topic of you know being a desirable travel trip or, or stuff within that vein i would make the argument that the bahamas are a great place to visit but you know just with the the price primarily that's kind of a tough uh you know sell given how little time you have to book it but at the same time you got to be happy but my original point i think i would say with the exception of New Orleans, I don't really think any of these games are, you know, huge vacation destinations, at least not for people, um, you know, that live in the part of the country where the majority of CUSA teams are. What, what would, would you agree with that? Orlando. And, and I'm not just saying that because I, you know, I'm near central Florida, but uh, I, having gone to UCF and having spent five and a half years of my life in Orlando, boy, oh boy, is it a tourist destination. So that's the only thing outside of, uh, you know, for those of us who don't have kids, uh, we'd probably look at New Orleans a little bit different. But for those families, boy, oh boy, do they love coming to Orlando. They clap when the flight lands. Sorry, I'm, I'm venting. <laughs> I was on the podcast. Uh, Orlando <laughs> would, be a, would be a tourist destination, Joe. No, I mean, yeah, Orlando, I would agree that uh, that's a pretty big tourist destination. But speaking in terms of the bowl games this year, I don't think any of those bowl games are in Orlando. Um, well, okay, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, see, this is now we're, we're doing this show on the fly again here. Um, even though, I, Joe, was the Cure Bowl not a CUSA tie-in this year? It, I think the reason they didn't get it was because of the you know whole wacky year with the Power 5 schools and how many didn't qualify, so you had to kind of send teams a lot of places. But CU, I, I thought the Cure Bowl was a CUSA tie-in. I could be wrong. CUSA teams have been in the Cure Bowl in the past. I believe the last one uh, was Western Kentucky two years ago. I could be wrong on that one, but I know I know that game happened, but I don't know if that was the most recent one. But yes, I believe you're right in that the, the Cure Bowl is typically a CUSA tie-in, but uh, no no tie-in for them this for, for season. This for, year. This yeah, year. yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're right. See, for, for those of you listening, like, you know, because of the, of the way the season shook out with the amount of P5 teams who didn't qualify, a lot of G5 teams were kind of sent in random places. For example, uh, FIU, and that's a game we'll talk about in a second, is heading to the Camellia Bowl. That is not a CUSA tie-in game. But the Camellia Bowl just happened to, you know, have the opening and they need to fill the slot. So sometimes that will happen. Yeah, and I mean, zero. you know, no disrespect to Montgomery, but I mean – were there any Charlotte fans that were really chomping at the bit to go spend a weekend there? I mean, I have a hard time believing that. So I guess my whole point is like, be happy with, for the program success, making a bowl game in the first place. And then B, uh, if you want to travel to the Bahamas, great. You're really going to enjoy it. If you don't, 
who cares? Like, just enjoy, just enjoy the success. It's not, it's if, not that if, big a deal. If, if you don't, Joe and I will gladly go in your place. Yes. Yes. Uh, I'll give me my, my Venmo is at Joe Londrigan. Send me tickets. Uh, I need a sugar daddy to get me plane tickets to the Bahamas ASAP. Uh, podcasting doesn't, uh, it's not as lucrative as you would think. So with that, we'll move on to the Jer- uh, Cherubundi Boca Raton Bowl, the uh, <laughs> most tongue-twisty bowl game that we have on the slate. Uh, FAU basically playing a home game against SMU. Uh, the Mustangs favored by three points there on ABC, 3.30 Eastern on the 21st. Um, this one's kind of tough because, you know, like we mentioned, FAU had really, really – um, a really good end of the season, obviously, winning the conference title. The defense was phenomenal. Offense uh, certainly wasn't too shabby either. Um, but you got to wonder, like, if they come into this game with that same kind of fire, uh, especially considering, you know, just kind of the coaching change. Not that they don't want to win for Glenn Spencer, but at the same time, it, it's got to be a weird atmosphere anytime you have an interim head coach at the helm. Um, but then with SMU, like, I don't know those two losses that they they had this year. They looked kind of kind of rough, but for those other ten games, man, were they they exciting to watch? So I think this is uh, this is going to be a really interesting bout. If I had to pick, it would almost be like a like a coin flip. But I guess I would go FAU just because I have a little bit more faith in their ability to play strong defensive football than I do SMU. I am in agreement with you there. If I am going to take a team, I am going with FAU because of the reason you said. However, when you look at the offense that SMU has, it is reminiscent of that, you know, kind of murderous row stretch that FAU faced in the early part of the year when they played the Ohio States, the Ball States, uh, UCFs of the world. I'm just going to run down scoring numbers here. 37 points, 49, 47, 41, 48, 43, 45. 34, 48, 59, 28, 37. Their lowest scoring game this year was 28 points. So that just goes to show you that this SMU team can put up numbers uh, in a hurry. Uh, and I think that's something that, you know, defensive coordinator Glenn Spencer, now interim head coach Glenn Spencer, will be faced with, you know, slowing down Shane Bushell and uh, James Prochet, who is one of my favorite receivers in all of college football. Uh, 102 catches for 1,139 yards and 14 touchdowns. Xavier Jones found the end zone 21 times on uh, – you know, 232 carries with just under 1,250 yards. So I think that's something you got to really be impressed with. But yeah, man, I think A, there's the factor of playing at home, which I think is going to be key. B, I think those players are going to be really motivated to show that they're not just a one-man show, the Lane Kiffin show. And C, I think they're going to be really motivated to try to win one for Glenn Spencer and put that one on his resume and say, hey, not only can we take down the, C, uh, you know, the CUSA opponents, we can take down a premier uh, American opponent and hey, this should be our guy. So I'm going to go with FAU here. Yeah, lots of strong talent on that SMU offense. Like you mentioned, there's definitely a reason the over-under on this game is at 71 and a half uh, as of mid-December. So really going to be a fun game to watch if you like points being scored. Um, that same day at three, uh, 5.30, rather, 5.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. We have Arkansas State hosting FIU in the Camellia Bowl. Uh, Red Wolves of Arkansas State favored by three points as of now, over under 63 points. Um, you know, I just got done talking about how Montgomery, Alabama is not a, de- uh, you know, a destination for vacationers. But if you like close games – you're probably going to start making your way there because I think this is going to be a really uh, a solid game. Arkansas state, that program has just been, you know, so consistent the last uh, like almost decade at this point, getting to bowl games. Uh, I forget the exact number of straight bowl games that they've made, but it's, it's been several at this point. So um, clearly have a really solid team there. Uh, FIU, they've just been so off and on this, uh, this season coming off of that Miami win, you would have thought like, you know, maybe they've finally turned the switch to close out the year. Uh, but then they lose their final game of the season. So I, I have my doubts about what that team can do. So, um, you know, zero disrespect to the guys on the FIU team, but I think I got to go Arkansas state on this one. Yeah, so it's interesting, and I believe Blake Anderson, the head coach at Arkansas State, has not missed a bowl game, uh, has not you know not qualified for a bowl game in his six years with the program. So I believe it's six straight years to address that question here. But this is a kind of a classic matchup of strength on strength there, Joe. 
Arkansas State is a team that loves to throw the football around. They have the nation's 14th-ranked passing attack. Uh, kind of an interesting situation there at quarterback where their quarterback situation, Elaine Hatcher is an Alabama transfer, uh, went there as a freshman, was actually recruited by Arkansas State out of high school but chose the bigger school, realized that wasn't necessarily the place he wanted to be, made his way back to Arkansas State this year, um, and wasn't even really the starter. Logan Bonner was the starter, but he suffered a thumb injury that sidelined him the rest of the year. All Lane Hatcher's done since he's had the job is become uh, Sunbelt Conference Freshman of the Year, throwing for 2,500 yards and 23 touchdowns. And it helps when you have just a stud trio of receivers. And Omar Bayless, who was the Sunbelt Conference Player of the Year overall, which, you know, that's not a reward you see typically headed a wide receiver, but his 84 catches for 1,400 yards and 16 touchdowns kind of helped that, uh, his, um, you know, kind of candidacy to win that award. They also have Kirk Merritt, who was a thousand-yard receiver last year, a former Oregon transfer, and then Jonathan Adams Jr., who's the second-leading receiver in yards this year with 788. So when I say strength on strength, obviously Arkansas State likes to pass the football. FIU had the nation's seventh-ranked pass defense. Now a lot of that you can say is, hey, if they played Old Dominion, UTEP, you know, UTSA, um, excuse me, not, not UTSA, but UTEP and Old Dominion. Uh, teams like that who didn't necessarily have the strongest of passing games and look at that and say, hey, okay, maybe that's why. But in in the uh, Panthers' defense, they really do have a really strong secondary. You know, guys like Stanley Thomas Oliver, who just received an invite to a postseason uh, award uh, bowl game um, or an all-star game to showcase his talents for the pro scouts, as well as guys like Isaiah Brown, Dorian Hall, Richard and Richard Dames. There's a lot of talent there in that secondary. So I think that's a matter of strength on strength. And then also – the we've talked about FIU's run defense being bad. They're 107th in the nation, and they've been an issue for the past two years. Joe, guess what? Arkansas State's run defense is actually worse. They are uh, uh, averaging, um, excuse me, they're they're ranking the 122nd out of 130 teams in uh, rushing yards allowed per game. So, uh, and, and in points per game allowed, they're 118th, allowing 35, uh, just under 35 points a game. So, guess what? When you talk about, you know, FIU's deficiencies against the run, Arkansas State's actually been worse. So they do have talented guys. Um, a guy, Darian Jackson, who was a former Boise State safety, will be their nickel guy. Um, William Bradley King is going to come off the end. He's had eight and a half sacks and 46 tackles this year. But, you know, maybe it's the homer in me. Uh, I just think that given Arkansas State's defensive issues and the fact that Arkansas State's strength is really the pass, which is the one thing that FIU can really, you know, their linebackers, Sage Lewis and Jamal Gates, are very good in coverage in addition to the secondary. I think there's a really good formula for the Panthers to win this one. And, and you talk about the Miami win, that came off a bye week. If it's one thing Butch Davis can do is that when his team has adequate time to prepare and really drill home those fundamentals as far as stopping the run and letting everything else take care of itself, along with the offensive lines really developed this year towards the end. You know, we talked about Sione Finu on an earlier podcast. Um, he makes all freshman team, Fianney Demery and uh, Devontae Taylor are honorable mention on the offensive line. So things are really starting to come together on that end for the Panthers. I just think that given the, the, the fact that they'll have the bowl practices and they'll get healthy, James Morgan should be a lot healthier. As, as, you know, he's kind of recovering the knee injury this year. I'm taking FIU. All uh, very solid points. Um especially the fact that Butch Davis knows how to get a team ready to go uh, following a significant amount of time off. Um, so I think they'll probably prove me wrong at this point based on the argument that you made, but we will see. Um, again, you can catch that one on ESPN on the 21st at 5.30 Eastern. And then to round out the slate of games on the 21st, you have UAB hosting the Sunbelt Conference champion and the number 20 team in the nation, the Appalachian State Mountaineers at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN in the RNL Carriers New Orleans Bowl, uh, as we mentioned, a destination game for a lot of reasons, but uh, nonetheless going to be a, should be a pretty solid game against two strong teams. Uh, however, I do have to say, I think App State is just uh, a really, really the more well-rounded team in, in every capacity. Um, only loss this season was kind of a shocker to Georgia Southern, uh, 24 to 21, about a month and a half ago. Um, but I mean, you look at what they were able to do in that Sunbelt conference championship against, uh, the raging Cajuns 45 to 38. Um, just every offensive weapon they had was on display. I think that's going to be a similar situation when they face UAB and, uh, you know, we saw UAB's defense kind of running on fumes at this point in the year, uh, gave up 
close to 600 yards to FAU in that conference USA championship game. And I think it's going to be more of the same, uh, especially given the fact that they're probably going to be, uh, well, I never mind. Um, I'll cut that out. But um, I guess overall, my point is that I think App State's going to take this one by a pretty significant margin, especially if UAB plays the way that they did in the Conference USA Championship game. Also of note, for App State, they are most likely going to be playing without their head coach, uh, Eliah Drinkwitz, who is probably going to be hired at Missouri within uh, a few days of us recording this podcast at this point. Yeah, as a matter of fact, just you know, kind of piggyback off that. I know some people might not have caught because I think it's happened as we've been taping. Uh, Elijah Drinkowitz is actually the head coach at Missouri. Whether or not he'll be the coach of bowl game, I, we, it's doubtful. But he is the head coach at Missouri. That's already been a, made official just within the past few minutes here. But as far as App State goes on the field, I mean, Zach Thomas is a guy who, at quarterback, you know, one of the best G5 quarterbacks in the nation, 26 touchdowns, just six interceptions on 2,500 yards passing, so you can't be mad at that. Darrington Evans is another guy to keep an eye on. His 17 scores is one of the tops in the Sun Belt, and they also have a, a nice backup in, Zach, in, uh, in Marcus Williams Jr. In addition to Zach Thomas, who can use his legs, he's also one for 400 yards and seven touchdowns. So I just think that App State, you know, we know that they're one of the better teams in G5, and they did have that slip-up that you mentioned, but on its surface, I just think that App State's been really strong this year. They're probably going to want to close us out with a win. And not probably, of course, they're going to want to close it out with a win. Um, you know, that's a laugh, I'll say probably. But uh, especially given the fact that UAB, they're, I don't want to say their confidence is shot, but you have to wonder, you know, you get yourself hyped up. You know, you're the defending conference champs, and you think you have a chance to go into FAU and Boca Raton and win it again and then really get smacked in the face and realize, hey, are we the team that, you know, not necessarily lucked up, but had a favorable schedule? Or are we a team that can really compete with a cream of the crop G5 team? And even if you look at App State, I would even put them just slightly ahead of FAU this year. So I just think that all things considered, when you take the blind test, you got to go with App State on this one. Yeah, pretty easy pick, at least to the uh, casual observer of Sunfelt football, which I am at this point, but uh, we got four bowl game previews in the can, and uh, we will have four more on the next edition of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast. Uh, so plenty more to come your way as we get through bowl season here. And uh, of course, the holiday season. Um, real quick to you and yours, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season, uh, however you're celebrating it. And uh, again, we say this every week at this point, but thank you all so much for listening to the show. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful year doing it and uh, looking forward to continuing into the new year and, of course, through the end of bowl season here. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I am at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And then, uh, of course, at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter as well. And uh, like them on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We really appreciate having you. Happy football watching, everybody. Talk to you soon.